evening, everyone. My name's Katie, and I'll be reading the Bible to you this evening. We've got um, two different books. The first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he, when he set out from Haran. The second reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. For that reading, Katie. Good evening, everyone. Great to be here with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Ken, and I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. How good, is it, how good is it to be back here with these numbers and being allowed to sing again? Um, Christmas is now only just over a week and a half away, but it's come a little bit early, which is nice. Uh, but in the lead up to that, Mark started for us last week our new series called The Wondrous Mysteries. Now, jealousy is possibly not the first thing you think of when you reflect on Christmas or, or start thinking about what God is like. And yet we saw that unlike most human jealousies, God's jealousy is something that we can actually be thankful for. We can be grateful that he's jealous. In fact, if he wasn't jealous, both for his glory and for us, we'd be in a lot of trouble. He came to us because he is for us. But today we're going to continue in our reflection on God in the lead up to Christmas by having a look at another one of God's attributes, his, what his character is like, by looking at his faithfulness. Now, it's quite likely that this is uh, more the kind of thing you'd expect us to focus on in the lead up to Christmas, but it's not as simple as it might first appear. It's another aspect of the mystery, the, the hidden things of God, the hidden plans of God that he has now made known. So to express our dependence on him, I'm going to pray and invite you to join me with me. Faithful God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. 
come to us because you're for us. And Lord, we see that this is not something that you've just decided to do to uh, fix up a problem that cropped up. This has been a part of your long declared plan that this is how you were going to rescue. We do thank you for this time of the year that we can slow down and reflect on things that may be really familiar uh, or may not be. Uh, but for us to stop and take the time to understand what you have revealed about yourself. And so as we spend time thinking about your faithfulness, uh, may it bring about changes not only in our understanding of you, but how we respond. And so we ask that by your spirit, you'd work in us uh, to bring about that change to Jesus' glory and honour. We pray it in his name. Amen. Dictum neum pactum. Now, I'm not sure why Latin makes it more impressive but it means my word is my bond it's a very common saying and it's also the long-term motto on the coat of arms of the london stock exchange before computerized computerization refined trading massive financial deals were made with no time for complicated contracts to be written and signed and so if somebody agreed to pay a certain price it was essential that they didn't change their mind later on. When circumstances changed, which they inevitably did, the broker was still committed to pay. The word was their bond. Now, stockbrokers may not be on the top of your list of people that you would consider to be the exemplars of this characteristic. No offence to any stockbrokers who are out there. Uh, but for me, I think that fictional characters in books and movies are the ones who best display this characteristic. There's a great scene in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo has run out of strength on his quest to go and destroy the ring. His friend Samwise Gamgee steps in. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cries. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. It's an extraordinary example of unwavering commitment. Don't you want a friend like that? Sam couldn't have known what would be required of him when he first became friends with Frodo or, or later on when he joined the Fellowship of the Ring. But he was a true friend, loyal, sacrificial. No matter the personal cost to Sam, his word was his bond. Now, I think that the opposite of faithfulness also confirms just how, an imp how important a characteristic this is to us. To be unfaithful is to make a promise and to not follow through. I'll be there by nine. It'll be in your inbox first thing Monday morning. Forsaking all others, be faithful to her for as long as you both shall live. To not follow through is to be unfaithful, to let the other down to break your word instead of your word being your bond they are merely words truth and binding only so long as they are convenient to keep whether you've experienced unfaithfulness through being let down by others or are brave enough to admit that you haven't always been faithful as we take time to consider god's faithfulness we contemplate something of immense value. And the astounding claim of the Bible 
is that this is not something that God just has a, a pretty good track record of. He is 100% faithful. He has never failed to keep his word. And he never will fail to keep his word. So important is faithfulness to God that direct and indirect references to his faithfulness fill both the Old and the New Testament. We could look at Psalms like Psalm 25.10 or 33.4. We could build up a collection of direct statements like that in Numbers 23.19, Joel chapter 2, verse 23. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.13 and Hebrews 10.23. Now, you're not expected to memorize all of those just yet. But instead of looking at those and sort of building up all the places where God say, where the Bible says God is faithful, instead we're going to look at how God displays his faithfulness in practice. Because I think that gives us a better insight into God's faithfulness. The first demonstration of God's faithfulness that we're going to examine is his interaction with Abraham or Abram. In the passage that we've read from Genesis 12, there's a number of things that we need to notice. The first is that God declares in advance what he is going to do. He declares in advance exactly what he is going to do. Have a look again at verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Often the promises that God makes are so spectacular that they sound too good to be true. And yet there is a precision to what God says he is going to do that, that binds him to a specific outcome. God's words are not vague Nostradamus-like predictions. They are bold and incredibly well-defined. Many of you, like me, probably have played pool or snooker and accidentally sunk a ball that you were not intending to sink. In contrast, the players that actually know what they're doing can announce in advance, number six, corner pocket. And they proceed to do exactly what they said they were going to do. And God does likewise. Except he doesn't just declare the next shot or the outcome of the game. He declares the outcome of world history and the important steps along the way. Now, it might frustrate us, it sometimes frustrates me, that he doesn't declare what job we should take or the name of the person that we should marry, what colour socks we should wear to the interview. But to, to, to say that, it's, it's not that he doesn't care or, or those type of things are not important to him, but he obviously knows a little better than us what is most important. To demand that God reveal our every step every detail of every choice that we have to make is to say that we are most important. But God never promises that kind of detail. Instead, he has spoken what we need to know. Notice also the repeated definiteness of God's promises. I will make, I will bless. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is not wishful thinking or extravagant claims. They are statements of fact. This is what's going to happen. There is nothing that can get in the way of God fulfilling his word. 
Now, we could spend time exploring the conditionality and unconditionality of God's promises. Some of God's promises appear to depend on how we react, whether we're obedient or not. God says, if you do X, then I'll do Y for you. But others, like I think this one in Genesis chapter 12, is a declaration of what will be the certain outcome in the future. What's most important for us to recognise is that all of God's promises necessitate our response. So go back again to verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. God gives instructions that need to be followed. Sometimes God does give a lot of detail. Perhaps more often, not nearly as much as we would like. Abraham here is told in effect to to jump in the car and get driving. He's not told the final destination or where you can buy petrol along the way. He's not told how long the trip will be or what hardships he'll face. He's simply told to get going with the promise that God will do amazing things for him and through him. If Abraham had any idea of the details of the trouble that he and his descendants were going to face on the road to the fulfilment of his promise, then he quite possibly would have never started out on the journey. And yet when God did speak, Abraham believed that God is faithful. And so he began the journey. Look again at verse 4. So Abraham, sorry, so Abram left as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. I think that this is a pretty good indicator both of what God expects of us and what we can be expecting of him. God will make amazing promises. He has made amazing promises. And he tells us things to do. And often we will want to get him to explain, well, why should I do this? Or we'll tell him that we know a better way to get there. Or perhaps we'll tell him of a shortcut that will get get us there a little bit faster. Like Abraham, if you know the rest of his story, we'll, we'll think that God has forgotten his promise because things are taking so long to, to come into being. And as a result, we'll take things into our own hands. Or perhaps like Sarah, his wife, will laugh at the promise because it's just too good to be true. Will he really provide what we so desperately want when we've asked over and over and he hasn't come through with a good deal? Will we really come out on top when the odds seem so heavily stacked against us? Rather than trust his word, we respond with doubt. And again, while we could go further down this path of examining the right response that we should make, the focus tonight is on the faithfulness of God. God said that he would bless Abraham and to a barren couple he granted children. To a homeless couple he granted land and wealth. God said that he would make Abraham into a great nation and he did. How could a couple of nomads with a tent and some sheep go on to become the source of blessing to the whole world? Well, only because God is faithful. Regardless of how outrageous the promises of God are, we can have certainty 
that he will always do what he said he will do. So don't be put off by the size of the promise or the length of time it's taking to be fulfilled. Don't lose hope because the path that you're walking on is hard. God never goes back on his word. He has never had to make excuses for for not following through. Once stated, it is as good as done. He is faithful. His word is his bond. Now, the second example we're going to look at very, very quickly is Moses and the people of God in Egypt. It's another very well-known story. Moses grows up in the palace. He tries to rescue his people in his own strength. That fails, and so has to flee from Egypt. Forty years later, God sends him back to Egypt to, to bring his people out. God has to use ten plagues to convince Pharaoh that it's time for them to go. And even then, the rescue appears in danger of failing. God leads his people through the Red Sea out into the wilderness for 40 years. And it is the next generation that is led into the promised land by Joshua. Now, again, the process is much more complicated than we would like it to be. And it took far longer than God's people hoped that it would. But God does what he said he would do. Near the beginning of the book, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 17, God says, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites. And decades later, despite Egypt being the superpower of the day, despite Pharaoh changing his mind multiple times, even though the promised land was occupied by nations with walls that went up to the sky, and God's people were unfaithful to boot, God did exactly what he said he would do. He gave his people a home. All the odds were stacked against it coming true. And yet because God was involved, this was the only outcome that could have ever been. God is faithful. This consistent faithfulness that God always does what he said he would do becomes the basis on which the prophets challenge God's people. While God remains faithful to his word, The only thing that God's people do consistently is to look to someone other than God for help, whether that was through establishing military alliances or slipping into idolatry, through appointing kings or storing up riches. God's people consistently sought to secure the future on their terms by their means. God said, trust me. He demonstrated very clearly his faithfulness And God's people in response looked elsewhere. And through the prophets, God condemned this misplaced trust. To trust himself, anyone or anything else, is not merely to look for better options. At its heart, it is to say to God, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that you're faithful. And so Jeremiah, as just one example of the hundreds that we could look at, exposes the response of God when people question God's faithfulness. Have a look at Jeremiah 17, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. God's people are held responsible for their lack of faith in a faithful God. Rather than receiving the promised blessing, they're cursed instead. The saying that insanity 
is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result can be tweaked for this situation. It is crazy to see God doing the same thing over and over and then expect him to do something different. Without fail, God speaks and does exactly what he said he would do. And so the logical response is that we're expected to act with confidence that he will keep his word. There's so many other examples that we could look at, but even this whirlwind overview of the Old Testament sets the scene very, very clearly for what Matthew says about Jesus' birth and early life. Have a look then at Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Well, let's see, to fulfill what the Lord had said. Why was he born in Bethlehem? Well, if you read on into chapter 2, verse 5 says, In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Why did Herod go to such extreme lengths in his attempt to kill Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Why did Jesus grow up in Nazareth? 2.23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. In each case, and in countless others that we could look at if we had the time, the events that take place are God keeping his word. God being faithful to what he said would take place. Events prophesied hundreds of years before take place according to plan. So precise are they that sceptical scholars conclude that they must have been written after the event. In each case, there's a mix of human motivations and, and complex circumstances that would seem to defy the possibility of advanced planning. And yet in each, the outcome is precisely what God said it would be. God's faithfulness isn't challenged by changing circumstances or unforeseen outcomes. He doesn't need to make adjustments because things haven't worked out as he planned. He ensures that unbelievable promises become reality. What we celebrate at Christmas is God keeping his word. We rejoice in God's faithfulness. We're going to look at one final passage to help us think further about the implications that God's faithfulness has for us. We didn't read it earlier, but if you've got your Bibles there, open to Luke chapter 2. It will be up on the screen behind me. We're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was in Jerusalem, sorry, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
moved by the spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Just like the other passages we've looked at, again, we have a complex interweaving of human and divine activity. Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to Jerusalem to fulfill laws given by God thousands of years earlier. They make the journey to Jerusalem doing what God had commanded. Simeon was waiting there, having already received the revelation from the Holy Spirit. And precisely at the moment that this couple and their baby arrive in Jerusalem at the temple, Simeon's prompted by the Spirit to go up into the temple courts. God acts. Simeon acts. Mary and Joseph act. Holding Jesus in his arms, Simeon declares, verses 29 to 32, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. As you have promised, my eyes have seen. For Simeon, seeing was believing. He had a unique experience that that none of us will will ever have. He, He had a unique part to play in salvation history. God told him minute details that were uniquely just for him. And yet at the same time, he declares the wider implications there are for us. This baby held by an old man is God's salvation. In an eight-day-old baby boy is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. For centuries, it had appeared that God was only interested in the Jewish people. And yet, in fulfillment of a promise to Abraham, came a baby boy, born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger, brought up to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised. It's possibly the most unlikely way that such an all-encompassing promise could be fulfilled. The wondrous mystery is that in a baby is the blessing of all nations. God said that he would do it, and his word is his bond. Our familiarity with the Christmas story may have blunted our wonder at what the words of Simeon are, but they're words given to him by God, and they should blow our minds. As a parent, I know what it is to anticipate great things for my children. It's normal to want them to grow up, to be, to be special, to be important, to make a scene. But this goes beyond parental dreams or the, the, the hopes of an old man. If these words about the baby Jesus are the words of God, then we can stake our life on them. In fact, if these are the words of God, we must stake our life on them. Jesus is not a, a cute baby lying in a manger to be ooed and aahed over. He is the embodiment of the most important thing that has ever happened. He is our salvation. Even at eight days of age, 
Simeon can refer to this as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Before Jesus has lived a perfect life, before he's performed a single miracle, before he's gone to the cross or risen from the dead, so certain is the outcome that the ending is declared before we've read the final page. The moral of the story is not that amazing things happen, so just believe. Nor is it that we should be faithful because it's such a noble characteristic to have. God's faithfulness is the basis of our hope. In his act of sending his son is the only means of our salvation. And while Samwise Gamgee or other fictional friends may seem to be the epitome of faithfulness, God goes one better. Because unlike them, God knew exactly what it would cost him to keep his word. And he did it anyway. He sent his one and only son, his faithful, obedient son, to make the way for unfaithful sons and daughters to be brought back to him. The faithfulness of God poses us all a question. Will we take God at his word? His word is his bond. Do you believe it? Faithful God, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken. And when you've spoken, we know that whatever it is that you have said will come to be. Thank you that you never turn back on your word. Thank you that you make amazing promises that even stretch to us, Gentiles living in Australia. Thank you that here we have a promise spoken to a man thousands and thousands of years ago. And yet at this time of the year, we can reflect and know that this promise is for us. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we reflect on Jesus at this time of year, that we would understand who he is, that he is our salvation. May we understand that what you have said is the thing that we must trust in. We pray these things in, his, in Jesus' name.